Amen. John chapter 12 this morning. As we continue our walk through John's gospel account, we reach a transition period in the life of Christ. This is the beginning of the week that will lead to his death on the cross. John chapter 12, we will look at verses 1 through 11. The title of the sermon this morning is Worship in All of Life. Worship in All of Life. The main point we derive from this passage is this. Whether it is worship of God or of self, all of life will lead to worship. That is a fact. All of life will lead to worship. Question for you, to whom or what are you most devoted? To whom or to what are you most devoted in your life? Now, it could be a devotion of love or a devotion of hate. We're all devoted to something or someone in our life. Students, to you all particularly, this past week being finals week, I hope you were devoted to your studies in an effort to be devoted to earning a good grade on that test. But there, I'm sure there's also some hate in that as well, right? Um, I remember tests in school and everything, and I, look, uh, coming clean here, I'm not a good test taker. Uh, that's not me. So if any of you are kindred spirits with me in that, we are together in that. So, amen. So husbands and wives, those of us who are married, there is devotion, I pray, of love and not of hatred uh, with those of us who are husbands and wives and those of you someday, Lord willing, who will be a husband and or a wife. Children, are you devoted to your parents? I hope you are in the way of seeking to obey the command of God to honor your father and your mother, which is greater than just simply loving your father and your mother. So we are devoted to something or someone in our life. We also, as human beings, as those of us who wear this flesh, we hunt and pursue happiness. We do. We as Christians know that joy is far deeper, far more eternal than just pure happiness, but we still do pursue to be happy in this life. It's hardwired into our human flesh. We are all treasure seekers. If it glitters, we want it. Do I have any National Treasure fans, those, those movies? Yes, Kyle, I see your hand. Yeah, I, great movies, wonderful movies. Love them, love them. But um, we are, we, we do. Whatever your treasure is in this world, it's that which your flesh desires. It does. I, I remember playing high, high school baseball and had this dream that I could be a major league pitcher. And then I would look at myself in the mirror and think, hmm, your height may be playing against you there. I couldn't throw 90, 95 miles an hour, so there goes that dream and that treasure of a major league mound. But we all do. We all want something that we don't have. We, I, I want an F-150. Um, I want, yes, the Cowboys to be Super Bowl champions again. I want the Braves to play like World Series champions again. But we all want something. 
whether it's a husband or a wife, a child, a house, a career, a degree, we all treasure something in this world. But we as followers of Christ must view this life, this life and this present age, view it differently than the unbelieving world. We must. John chapter 12 focuses on the reactions of love and hate of those around Christ. Love and hate of those around Jesus. In John 12 verse 1, beginning in verse 1, marks a major transition in John's gospel account, beginning with his account of this final week of Jesus' life on earth as he approached the cross. This seven-day period that begins here is the greatest week in history. Yes, I said that. This seven-day period is the greatest week in human history. Now, yes, the seven days of the creation week were certainly of tremendous significance and value. But John also records the first seven days of Jesus' earthly ministry in John chapter 1, 19 through 51. The surpassing importance of Jesus' final week here can be seen in the fact that John devotes almost half. We're in chapter 12 this morning. John devotes almost half of his gospel account to this final week of Christ on this earth before he approaches and hangs on that cross, which is an emphasis we can see in the other gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke as well. While Matthew, Mark, and Luke, though, focus mainly on Christ's public events, John writes of the private fellowship that Jesus, the private fellowship that Jesus enjoyed with his close disciples, those who were closest to him, those who seemingly loved him, but as we will see this morning, there was one among them who hated him. John's gospel account dwells on the theme of fellowship with Christ. Now as we approach John chapter 12, verse 1, on this Saturday, at that time, where we see ourselves in God's word this morning, Jesus dined with Lazarus and his sisters, as well as the disciples. Let's pray. Father, as we dive into your word this morning, as we seek to learn from you, I pray that you teach, that you instruct, that all the more as we see at the heart of this passage that we desire to worship you, that we desire to give you that which you desire to the uttermost, to the uttermost. So Lord, I pray you lead and you be praised in Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 12, verses one through 11. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? 
He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. First example we see here of worship to Jesus as the Christ is the example of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus specifically. We see three individuals pointed out in these first three verses who were with actually hosting Jesus and the disciples for this time of dinner and fellowship. Jesus frequently visited this home in Bethany throughout his ministry life of three years on this earth. Why? Because he loved them and he knew that they loved him, Lazarus and his sisters. He desired to just simply fellowship with them, just to be with them, to commune with them over food and discussion. But what resulted here is worship. What resulted here is we see these three specifically who could not contain themselves. They had to be with Jesus. They had to be in his presence. Before his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Jesus came to this little town of Bethany, a town, by the way, that is small still today. And if you were to travel to Bethany, it is still known as the town, as the place where Lazarus was raised from the dead. People still know that today. But Jesus, the purpose of food, fellowship, and to above all reveal the examples of those who love him and hate him, Matthew 26, 6, in this house, this house is the Simon, is, uh, is of Simon the leper. It's his house that Lazarus and his sisters lived in and stayed in. Simon the leper who had been healed by Christ. We see a portrait of different believers offering different kinds of ministry to Jesus in this passage. We see these different types of ministry played out even at the branch church. Martha's gift was service, and she offered it gladly. Here at the Branch Church, we have kids' ministry, hospitality ministry, administrative ministry, finance ministry, worship through song ministry, preaching and teaching, and on and on and on. We need people who are here partnered with us, covenanted members with us to take part in those ministries to fuel those ministries. It's not Bailey and I who fuel those ministries. It's Christ above all, but it is you all. It is you all who fuel the flame of Christ into those ministries and the fuel of his gospel filling, overflowing in those ministries that others may know Christ. As you faithfully serve in these ministries here at the branch, you must do so with devotion to Christ And in so doing, you worship him in and through your service. Not of the branch, but ultimately to him. 
Lazarus served as a physical living witness of Jesus' saving power and rule over death. As such, Lazarus sat next to Jesus at table. I love when we read scripture and it talks about Jesus sitting at table and I, I just find peculiar joy in the fact that the word the is not between at and table. We would want to put at the table, but it's just very poetic and very beautiful the way the Holy Spirit led John and others to write his word. Lazarus would have been sitting right there next to him. Why wouldn't he be, after all? This was Christ. This was the man, the God-man, the Son of God, who had risen him from the grave, from the dead. So obviously, he would want to be as close to Jesus as he physically could be. Mary was known and is reflected in each of the gospel accounts, known for her extreme devotion to Jesus, shown in her response to him. Verse three records one of the most beautiful scenes from the life of Jesus. Mary stands out here for her example of loving devotion to Christ, which leads to her worship of him. We see four features of her devotion which leads to true worship of Jesus. First, Mary's devotion was courageous. Really, we can say this for Simon, Lazarus, Martha, and all the disciples as well. Remember what we read last week as Bailey preached. Look at verse 20, uh, 57, rather, at the close of chapter 11. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, meaning Jesus, he should let them know so that they might arrest him, arrest Jesus. So here you have these faithful followers of Christ risking their own freedom, potentially risking their own life. But what was worth such a risk? Christ was, Christ is. They opened their house to him and openly hosted him for this meal. As we see in verse 10, Lazarus in particular was in danger as the rulers, the Jewish rulers and leaders sought to kill him in an effort to, in their minds, wipe away the power of Christ that had risen him from the grave to life again. The lukewarm carnal heart that is not truly nor fully devoted to Jesus Surrender to him, submitting joyfully to his desired will for your life. Such a lukewarm heart will always hesitate to follow his will. This type of heart will always straddle the fence between the opinion of this world and of God. This kind of heart will always look to the news of today and maybe cling to certain opinions here and there that popular opinion holds, but also hold to the opinion of Christ, holding to both sides at the same time, and not applying what is in Christ, what is in the word of Christ, to the opinion of the world, and altering the world's opinion to make it abide by the word of God. This kind of heart, lukewarm, carnal heart, will always seek to befriend this world and God. 
This lukewarm carnal heart is much too at home in this world and is too easily swayed and persuaded by the world's values. This is not the devotion we see here in this passage. It's not the devotion that we see throughout the totality of Scripture of those who faithfully love and serve the holy God. The Old Testament examples of faith we have, it's not what we see from Paul and those who supported his ministry. It's not what we see from the Marian martyrs who were burned at the stake. It's not what we see from the church in China, the church in Iran. It's not what we see from pastors in Canada. And I could go on and on and on of modern day, present day examples we see of those who were fully, totally, completely devoted to Jesus Christ. Setting aside their freedom, and even sometimes setting aside their very life. In each case, they lived a life that reflected Luke 9.23. They picked up their cross. They carried their cross daily. What does the cross of Christ represent? It represents submission, surrender, and death that springs life. That's what we're called to do as followers of Jesus. We are called to pick up our cross daily, surrendering to Christ, submitting to Christ, dying to self such that we may live to Christ. This type of lukewarm carnal devotion does not ultimately reflect what we see from Jesus himself even. Mary, Martha, Lazarus, Simon, they all beheld Jesus. They loved him, not for only what he had done for them, but for who he was. Remember, remember, this is why John wrote his gospel. He tells us in chapter 20, he could go on and on and on and on and write volumes after volumes after volumes detailing what Christ did in his three years of earthly ministry, but what John wants us to see here and what he wants us to see in this example this morning in this passage is simply behold Jesus. Behold him for who he is. As we begin to behold the wonder of Jesus, we begin to become more like him, desiring the things he desires for the reasons he desires them. Ultimately, Ultimately, that we live life before the face of God. Ultimately, that we understand and know that we, in fact, do live life before the face of God. And it leads us to seek daily. Seek daily that all that we say, that all that we do, that all that we pursue, that all that we dream about have this end in mind. Glory to God alone. What you see, what you know at the Branch Church Milledgeville is just that. Our worship team, our worship services are designed around this. Your feelings, your emotions are not God. God is God. When you attend the Branch Church Milledgeville, we do not seek to appeal to your emotions. It is not our goal to make you happy. It is our goal to seek your joy in Christ. 
It is our goal to lift up your eyes, to lift up your mind, to lift up your heart to see the holy God. Because in the end, that is what is best for your soul, your life. Your feelings don't define truth. God's word defines truth. Mary's devotion was costly. Literally speaking, the ointment she used was incredibly expensive. The pound, which is actually 12 ounces of ointment here, 300 denarii. That is one year's wages for the typical wage earner at that time. This nard was oil extracted from the root of a plant grown in India, in South Asia, Southeast Asia. Whether Martha, Mary, and Lazarus were wealthy or not, that's not the point. The point is that she was willing to take one year's wages, purchase this expensive ointment for the sole purpose of worshiping Christ. What are you willing to forsake? What are you willing to forsake for the worship of Christ? Job, family, and that does not mean divorce because as married couples, we are covenanted together a very strong, a very important covenant under Christ. Location, prestige, pride, what are you willing to forsake for the worship of Jesus Christ? What has your faith in Christ cost you? Because you see, the simple fact is this. If we be a believer in Jesus Christ, if we our regenerated believers in Christ having been given the faith by God, by his grace, to believe unto Christ and thereby being reborn into new life in Christ, your faith will cost you something in this life. It will cost you family relationship, friend relationship. It will cost you job potentially. It will cost you living in places that you would rather not live, potentially, in your life. To minister the gospel to a people that you never thought you would in your life. Your faith, if it be true faith in Christ, will cost you something. And sometimes it will cost you the greatest of things in this life. Those who would stay here in Milledgeville, it costs something. Those who left and desire to come back to Milledgeville, how crazy is that? For the sole purpose of a desire to be in a faith community that pursues Christ above all. What has your faith in Christ cost you? Mary showed humble devotion as well, the use of perfume was customary for special events. This was a time when bathing was infrequent and the climate was hot, which would have equaled body odor. If one day I, I hope to take many of you to Southeast Asia and, and when you're among those, it seems, billions of people on the streets, you get the whiff of something distinctive. Perfume was used for an intentional purpose, and it's no mistake that that nard was grown in India. 
It's no mistake that God did that. He knew that billions of people would need such a perfume. A host would place a small dab of this ointment on the head or face of a guest, much like Christ was in this home in this moment. But Mary took things much farther, much more costly to herself, so that Jesus would receive the honor and worship that he alone is due. And that's just it, isn't it? If we seek, if we seek to worship Christ as he alone is worthy of such worship, if we seek to live a life that reflects Christ-likeness, if we seek to worship him in all of life, we will want to give him far more. We will want to exert far more in our lives to worship him. We will want to give up far more of our time, far more of our energy, far more of our money, far more of our life to the Christ who alone is worthy. But Mary, in taking things farther, did not just pour this ointment on his head as we see in the other gospel accounts. She also put some on his feet. With Jesus reclined at table, his legs would have been extended outward. Mary anoints not only his head, but also the feet of Christ at this moment. It was considered beneath an individual to wash another's feet at this time. Beneath another individual, even slaves had rights at this time, and one of their rights was they did not have to wash their master's feet. Mary's devotion can also, though, be described as extravagant. As humble as her devotion was, as extravagant was her devotion to Christ. As amazed as the disciples were when Mary washed Jesus' feet, they were shocked as she let down her hair. See, women of that day were required by law, by civil law, and by God's law, to adorn themselves not seeking attention from men, but to be humble, be gracious. So her hair would have been up. It would have been in a bun. And women who would let down their hair in public, their husbands could divorce them. They could be stoned to death. Mary was risking a lot in this setting. This is Mary showing complete surrender to Christ, knowing that she, complete, she was completely safe in his holy presence and seeing him as divine Lord of her life. She desired that nothing, absolutely nothing, stand between her devotion and him. What stands between you and such devotion to Christ? What stands between you and complete devotion to Christ? What stands between you and complete obedience to the commands of Christ? Psalm 36, verses 5 through 12, we read this. 
Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep man and beast. You save, O Lord, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down and able to rise. That is the voice of the believer. That is the voice, the spiritual outcry of Mary in this moment in John 12. Where did this type of devotion come from, from Mary? Where, where did she get such devoted following, devoted desire, devoted love to Christ? Luke 8, we read this in verses 1 and 2. Soon afterward, he went on, meaning Jesus, went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. That's Mary. Mary remembered where she was without Christ. Do you? Do you remember who you were without Christ? Maybe you were raised in a Christian home. Maybe you never remember a moment without thinking upon Christ. But for most of us, that's not the case. And for all of us, even those raised in a Christian home, we must know this. We were, according to the word of God, dead men, dead women walking a dead life, and Christ, Christ filled our life anew. That's Mary. Mary remembered what Jesus Christ had done for her, not just removing those seven demons from her, but showing her life, true life, true peace, true love in the person of Jesus Christ. Next, we turn to one who hated Jesus in the person of Judas. Jesus came to this world to seek and to save the lost, as Luke 19.10 tells us, but in doing this, Jesus also brought the sword of the gospel, the sword of his gospel truth. This sword of the gospel, which separates a man against father, a daughter against mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, as Matthew 10.34 and 35 tells us. Jesus, his presence, his ministry, his gospel separates the believer from the unbeliever. When Jesus and his sovereign truth are present, there is an ever clear distinction between one who, according to Matthew 10, 39, a clear distinction between the one who finds his life in this world and thereby loses it, and between the one who finds his or her life in Christ and thereby gains that life because it is life in Christ. 
meaning this, there is life only in and through Christ alone. In Judas, we see one who sought his life in this world, and he most assuredly lost his life. What we see in this passage from Judas, if someone claims to be a believer yet lives like the devil, that person then is of the devil. It's that simple. The consistent pursuit in your life, the consistent pursuit of holiness, the consistent pursuit of Christ-likeness, the consistent pursuit of Christ, or the consistent pursuit of worldly pleasures, the consistent pursuit of sinful desires, the consistent pursuit of things of the devil and not of Christ. Judas, though, proves how persuasive a a hypocrite can play the role of a disciple. He was entrusted by the other disciples as the treasurer. Judas held the money back. This was the highest position that one could have held in this group of disciples. They trusted him. They trusted him. He was entrusted with all of the money given to them to do ministry in all this city, on all the cities they went to. Yet his ploys to pilfer the money given to the group of disciples and use it for his own desires, this was no secret among the disciples either. Look at verse 6. John clearly says he didn't really care about the poor, but because he was a thief. They knew this. At the close of Ecclesiastes, we see every secret thing, whether good or evil, will be known and will be brought into judgment. Chapter 12 in Ecclesiastes, verses 13 and 14. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Judas was not alone in his complaint about wasting the expensive ointment. So don't jump all on Judas in this moment in John 12, 1 through 11, because in the other gospel accounts, specifically in Matthew 26, 8, we read, when the disciples, plural, The disciples saw it, saw what Mary had done with that expensive ointment. They were indignant, saying, why this waste? So Judas led them into their indignance toward what Mary had done. That is how much the disciples trusted him. They trusted where he led them. They trusted where he would lead them and take them in that moment. Yet, it is Judas who is singled out as the thief, and it was he who hated Jesus and thus sought to fill the desires of the God of self. Judas's claim about serving the poor, again, was not genuine. As much as Jesus' response concerning having the poor always with you was not disingenuous. A frequent challenge to the types of devotion shown by Mary is this. Well, teach us more about how to practically 
practically use the things in life, how to practically care about the poor, how to practically feed the poor, which we should do. We'll be having another community cookout this Tuesday evening here right out front in this parking lot, and we will invite those around in this community to come for the sake of feeding them, but also all the more of showing them Christ. True worship is not a song, but the word of God, the spoken word of God, the words of Christ. Every Lord's Day, you come to the Branch Church of Milledgeville, I can guarantee you this. You will hear the word of God prayed. You will hear the word of God sung. You will hear the word of God preached and taught. Your life in Christ, your soul in Christ, your new life reborn in Christ should desire nothing else. The deeper we press into knowing God, knowing what he desires, knowing what pleases him, the more we love him. To know Christ is to love Christ. As such, worship will lead us to worship as did Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, go and read Isaiah 6 today and read those verses and see what occurs in that moment when Isaiah's eyes and his mind and his heart are lifted up to see Christ. What does he exclaim? Woe, woe, woe. Oh, wretched man that I am. Whoa. That is our response to true worship. It's not jumping and being all giddy and being all emotionally happy. Raise your hands. Proclaim your love and your joy to Christ as we sing, as we worship by all means. But in so doing, we will ensure, it is our goal to ensure that your eyes, your mind, your heart are lifted up outside of yourself to see and to know Christ. Idolatry, this worship of self begins in the mind, not in the heart. The greatest commandment in the law, we read it in Matthew twenty two thirty seven: you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. As a Christ follower, the renewing of our mind is absolutely necessary that we renew our understanding of who God is and what he desires for us. The words we read from Judas in verse 5 are his very first words recording in Scripture. Soon he would not receive 300 denarii but 30 pieces of silver for betraying Christ. Matthew 27, 4, we see his last words in Scripture. Words recorded after he changed his mind. God gave him the realization in that moment of what he had done. That this actually was the Son of God. This, this man was sinless. He had done nothing wrong. What we read, though, in Matthew 27, 4, in those last words of Judas, they're not repentance. They're an admission, but not repentance. 
Psalm 36, verses 1 through 4. This is the unbeliever we read about here. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. That was the life of Judas. When challenges come your way, as they were at the doorstep, the literal doorstep of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus here in this moment, as well as the disciples, they were in the presence of Christ. The Jewish leaders said, your civic duty is to do what? Report to us that Christ is in this house so that we may arrest him. They didn't do that. They didn't do what the government told them to do in that moment. They did what Christ commanded they do. Worship him. Be with him. Be in his presence. Gather together in his presence as the body of Christ to worship him. I love what we see there in verse 7. Jesus said in the reply to Judas and the disciples, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Now, it's not clear if Mary understood completely that Jesus would die and would be buried in that grave, but Jesus knew. Jesus knew what the purpose was, and Jesus would say in Matthew that what Mary accomplishes here will go forth in the gospel to the end of time not because it was Mary, but because of her sacrificial love to Christ, her devotion to Christ. And in closing the passage, we see her devotion offered, Mary's devotion offered a lasting memorial to the divine glory of Christ. Lazarus's devotion and his witness offered a memorial to the divine power of Jesus. From eternity past to present day and until Christ returns, God has proportioned a people for himself. God has designed his plan to have a people for himself, a people through whom he displays his glory and desiring to display his glory to those who have yet to surrender to Jesus as their Lord and Savior. On account of him, of Lazarus, many of the Jews were going away believing in Jesus. On account of you, who will believe in Christ? On account of your witness of worship to Christ, on account of your witness of life in Christ, who will believe unto Christ? Our mission statement, as the Branch Church Milledgeville, we gather, grow, and go in the gospel for the glory of God alone. We've been redeemed by God. We have on this day gathered for worship as his body. We now go. 
we now, as we near the close of this worship service, will walk through those doors. We are now sent by God into this world to witness in our worship in all of life to witness the gospel of Christ. What will be the aroma of your life this week? The aroma of that ointment filled the house there and that aroma carried over that week with Christ to the cross. What will be the aroma of our life this week? Will it be the aroma of the world and its evil and its evil desires or will it be of Christ? The one, the only one who can bring peace and life and true love in this world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time to worship you, this time to have our mind renewed, a heart all the more inflamed and in tuned to your desires. So Lord, I pray that as we begin to close this time of worship, that, that it not be the close of our worship in this week, but that, that it only be the beginning, that it be the beginning time of worship and that we seek to worship you in all of our life and all that we think, that we do, that we speak, that we pursue, that we dream about, and all that we do, that we worship you and bringing glory to you, that your gospel be heard, your gospel be known, that you be proclaimed and that you be known and that you be glorified. Jesus, in your name we pray, amen.